Hi, I'm Sebastian Couture, and you're listening to Epicenter, the podcast where we interview crypto founders, builders, and thought leaders. On this show, we dive deep to learn how things work at a technical level, and we fly high to understand visionary concepts and long-term trends. If you like Epicenter, the best way to support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're on a Mac or iOS device, the easiest way to do that is to go to epicenter.rocks Apple. And if you're new to the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Well, it's been a pretty interesting year. And as I mentioned last week, we're taking a well-deserved break over the holidays, but we've got something for you nonetheless. So last month, just days into the U.S. election, the COGX and Fabric Ventures teams organized Hacking Democracy. This was an event that explored how open technologies and new systems of governance could be a path forward towards a future of democracy. I had the privilege to moderate a panel on the future of voting. Panelists were John Nash, who's a fellow at Demos, an independent think tank, Santiago Siri, president of Democracy Earth, Dr. Gramatea Kutsialu, a fellow at the Mathematics Department at the London School of Economics and Political Sciences, and Professor Amrita Dillon, who's a professor of economics at King College London. One of the really interesting insights from this panel is this notion that democratic technologies are centuries old, and the systems of governance around them are slow and perhaps ill-adapted to the 21st century. If you think of the U.S. Constitution as the operating system for American society, consider that that software is over two centuries old. The U.S. Constitution was written in the 1700s, and that it hasn't received a major version update since its last constitutional amendment in 1992. So first of all, there's no way that the considerations and preoccupations of the 18th century perfectly overlap with those of modern times. Take one example. I think that the time between election day and the time at which elections are certified in December was meant to leave enough time for people to ride on horseback from the West Coast to Washington. And much like software, if it's left unpatched, it can and it will be attacked. And I think that perfectly illustrates what's been happening to our democracies in the last two decades, and certainly that's accelerated in the last five to 10 years. By contrast, the foundations for many European democracies are much more recent. For instance, France and Germany's constitutions were adopted in the last 80 years. Now, maybe that gives them slightly better protections for now, but certainly they're not immune to attacks. And I think that European democracies will be increasingly under pressure in the next few decades. So what's the outcome here? Well, I don't know, but I think this panel provides avenues for improvement with modern voting techniques and things like liquid democracy, which we've discussed here on the podcast before. Certainly, this is something that we need to be thinking about in a conversation that we need to have at at a global level if we want our society to continue to flourish. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. And with that, I'd like to wish you very happy holidays and a happy new year. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Hacking Democracy, um, which is indeed brought to you by Fabric Ventures in conjunction with uh, with COGX. I am Richard Muirhead, Fabric's uh, managing partner. We're an investor in this uh, open web, open economy space. Uh, it's uh, great to welcome you from wherever you're joining us uh, today. Um, and in this next session, we're going to reflect on something that I think even the, uh, the most lay observer can note, which is that uh, counting ballots by hand couldn't be much more uh, analog. And, you know, we saw it at the turn of the century in, in 2000. Um, we also saw it just recently now. We get um, the question of uh, hanging chads back in 2000. We also had now people staring at numbers, trying to decipher what had been written, but uh, or even debating how close observers should be with their binoculars to 
to observe the actual count itself. And with the rest of our lives, you know, increasingly uh, digitized, indeed dependent on digital platforms, um, surely the voting system is uh, ripe for some kind of update. Um, so in this next session, we're going to explore that. And I'm delighted to welcome uh, Sebastian Couture, who um, is the host of the Epicenter podcast, which I must say um, has something that has been uh, very welcome as my running partner around Hyde Park now for um, many years. Um, and he's going to introduce a panel of uh, most esteemed experts and get a lively conversation going, I'm sure. Sebastian, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thanks, Thank Richard. And uh, I'm glad I can make your uh, your run more enjoyable. So we are here today to talk about uh, well, what Richard was introducing earlier, which was this very analog process of counting votes. And it does seem quite analog, given you know, the technological innovation uh, that has just exploded in the last you know, three or four decades. Uh, I'd like to welcome our our panelists for this conversation. Uh, they are academics, activists, engineers, uh, political scientists, and experts in this field. We're going to be talking about liquid democracy, digital voting, and so on. Um, so I'd like to actually get our panelists to introduce themselves. So if we could bring them up on the screen and we'll just do a, a round of introductions first before we get into this conversation. Hi everyone, I'm John Nash. I'm a fellow at Demos. We're an independent cross-party think tank and I work on uh, democratic innovation here. I'm uh, Santi Siri. I've been um, an activist, a hacker, developer, trying to figure out how to do digital democracy since 2012 with several pilots and experiments my back and uh, looking forward to, to this discussion on this panel. Hello, everyone. I am Gramatia Kotsialu, and I am a fellow in the Department of Mathematics in the London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, the last three years, I have been working on liquid democracy and in blockchain voting. Hi, everyone. I'm a professor of economics at uh, King's College London. Uh, my interest in this topic is uh, because I've been working a lot on uh, strategic uh, voting games. So basically applying game theory to voting. Uh, I've done a lot of work on um, equilibria and so on. And uh, my interest here is because I've been working on uh, voting and uh, innovations in uh, in voting you know, systems that you can have with, uh, with blockchain. Thanks. And of course you are Amrita Dillon. So I'd like to start off by, you know, right off the bat, getting getting sort of an assessment, your assessment of what is the state of the democratic process in, let's say, the G20 countries, and which of these countries are driving innovation in the space of digital voting and the liquid democracy space as a form of more direct suffrage uh, for policy making? So um, I can go on that first. Um, so um, we have that the vast majority of democracies there around the world uh, operate through a representative democracy system where every member of the electorate can uh, vote for a candidate to represent them in the parliament, Congress, etc. So that system was introduced many, many years ago when it made a complete sense to do that. Uh, for example, the populations were too big in order to have an agora-like assembly where anyone uh, could just turn up um, to vote. 
However, now we have the rise of the internet and um, this system to elect a government seems every year more and more outdated. So we have that more and more um, services go online. So why voting is still not there? So the point the recent years, I, I believe that um, a kind of direct democracy where everyone can vote on a specific issue uh, becomes more and more popular. And Switzerland, for example, is um, a good example for combining some type of representative and direct democracy because um, I think they they give some uh, votes to to people, so uh, some referenda referenda in specific topics to vote on. However, for the UK, I think they have has been coping a bit less well uh, with this combination. So we can see that also from the EU referendum. Estonia also is a country that um, is some type of example in digital voting as they allow citizens to vote online. However, they also have the backup uh, process for a paper ballot um, election at the same time. I'd like to chime in, you know, usually when the discussion goes around introducing technology in an electoral process, very rapidly that can go into a discrete uh, where it's technology, yes or no, like a binary choice. And it, in, in reality, it's really a spectrum, you know, how much technology, technology and where do we apply technology? It's interesting if you look, go back in history, uh, for instance, the origin of IBM in the 19th century as a tabul uh, tabulating machines company, uh, it was created as a company to actually tally the U.S. election uh, that uh, back in the 19th century could take as long as uh, several months to actually count the votes. So IBM was born out of a need uh, to address the scalability of uh, figuring out uh, fraudulent votes on a national election. If we go closer to our times, uh, an interesting case is India. Uh, speaking of G20 countries, India is the largest democracy in the world, 800 million voters. Uh, it has uh, an election that lasts for six weeks. Uh, it takes a long time to count those votes. And since uh, 1994, they actually introduced uh, a an electronic device to uh, uh, put the input of the ballot. This is a very simple device, closer to a calculator than to a computer, so it reduces the cost of auditing the technology. But an interesting fact is that until then, on uh, every election in India, an average of 200 people died because of the uh, violent events, uh, ballots being stolen, uh, ballot boxes being burned, uh, all kinds of events that happen in a, such a big country like India. Since 94, the deaths uh, occurring on electoral uh, processes have gone to near zero. And in last year's election, it was the first election in India's history that had more women voters than, than male voters for the first time in history. And that's a consequence of introducing some degree of technology into the process. And, and I think, you know, we have to, to start paying attention to how we can use civic tech and blockchain-based tech to uh, improve the, the quality of electoral processes. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a great quote by Leo Strauss that comes to mind here. He said that political science fiddles while Rome burns, and they're excused by two things. They know not that Rome burns, and they know not that they fiddle. And so I'm somewhat less optimistic about the answer to this question in that I see a lot of fiddling. Representatives, 
giving citizens, say, 1% of the budget in participatory budget exercises or remote cantons in Switzerland exercising broad direct democracy. And I would like to see more, but I don't think we've quite arrived at a comprehensive answer. I think once we once we figure this out, then we can start to see movements in this direction. But uh, in terms of the state of play today, I, I, it's it's not great. I tend to agree with that. So, uh, you know, with regard to the question about which countries are at the forefront of innovations, actually what we see is that uh, although there, there has been some social science research on how electronic voting can improve outcomes. So one is the case of uh, Brazil, where an economist uh, Thomas Fujiwara showed that uh, that uh, you know the, the fraud measured by the number of residual votes goes down and health spending, on uh, especially for the poor, goes up. So it had some clear benefits there. And in the case of India, too, there have been studies showing that, I mean, uh, of course, uh, Sandy mentioned the, the violence, but there have also been studies showing that uh, ballot stuffing, uh, which used to be a big feature of uh, elections when they were held at uh, without these uh, electronic voting machines, that has gone down tremendously. On the other hand, in some uh, developed countries like the Netherlands, uh, you know, they have actually reverted uh, from electronic voting to paper ballots. So, so obviously, there are deep fears about hacking of these, uh, of you know, of electronic voting. So, I think one of the big questions is how we can ensure that voters trust the the system of electronic voting. Thank you for those answers, and uh, I'm kind of comforted to see that there's. Uh, so both sides here, uh, one that's perhaps more optimistic and one uh, that uh, sees things uh, perhaps in a more pessimistic light. But, uh, but that'll g- make for, I think, for a good debate in this conversation. So during this, this answer was mentioned, the, uh, some of the benefits of, of electronic voting, uh, one was you know, the reduction of uh, ballot stuffing, voter fraud, uh, obviously more access to underprivileged populations, et cetera. Um, I believe in India, you know, these electronic voting machines are even you know, carried into the forest and into the, you know, the, the deep, yeah, the deep forests of India to, uh, to deliver them to people so that every single uh, participant can vote, which is great. But looking more at the broad benefits of um, direct digital voting and just, you know, to a broader extent, liquid democracy, what are the incentives here you know, for the different stakeholders in democracy, that is individuals, you know, voters, but also governments and, you know, to a third uh, extent, corporations that also participate in our, in our democracy to some extent. In, in my personal experience, when I, when I did uh, activism back in Argentina, uh, along with some colleagues and friends, we did a political party and we tried to change the system from within. My conclusion after several years of political activism in Latin America is that if you want to be successful in that system, it's, mu- it's more likely that you you will end up being changed by the system first. You will end up becoming yourself an efficient player of a system that tries to persist and, uh, and, and be preserved throughout the decades and throughout the centuries. My philosophy today, it's a personal take, is that uh, we rather figure out how to build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And in that regard, the rise of blockchain networks or, or, or trust networks that allow for the creation of new kinds of entities, for instance, the creation of distributed uh, autonomous organizations or uh, you know, entities that are operating cyberspace you know, that do not rely on any traditional jurisdiction and execute their decisions by means of smart contracts, it's an entirely new canvas to explore 
governance and what governance uh, is in the 21st century that does not need to ask for any kind of special permission. And it just takes a new generation to start piloting and trying and experimenting with this new technology. And that can work for uh, public goods and for uh, private entities as well. Yeah, I see, I see several uh, good features of a system like uh, liquid democracy. For example, in, where, in referenda, which uh, Gramatia mentioned, for Switzerland, there are referenda where, you know, for example, in like the, there, is the, there was the Brexit vote, there are various, um, you know, policies that the government would, would, might, might want to take on uh, how to control coronavirus. And, you know, in all of these, I think that the role of uh, being able to delegate votes to people that you think know more than you, uh, that should be a good feature of liquid democracy. This is something that I've, I've worked a bit on. And, uh, you know, what we show mathematically is that actually the, the information aggregate, it, it is possible to construct mechanisms of liquid democracy so that information is better aggregated uh, in large elections. I would like also to mention here that, um, uh, thanks, Santiago, for sharing your experience with um, trying, trying to change the system from within. And I would like here to say that there are more and more uh, people in academia that they are getting into the, um, exploring the liquid democracy mechan uh, mechanisms. So um, I believe that will be very helpful and it's going to have some uh, good results that we can rely on later of how we can move something like that into practice. I, I also believe that one of the um, main ways to do something like that is, is a blockchain technology. So um, uh, this technology could potentially move politics into the 21st century. And there are many projects um, and teams that they are looking into that of how you can create a secure and trusted uh, online voting system. And that's mostly to create the trust for the public to trust the online voting systems. As I said, using this technology yeah, could help us ed, um, implement some type of liquid democracy. And that should also allow the political system to be more fluid and hopefully quicker to react to influential people that might uh, act maliciously, because we might not have to stay with representatives for four or five years. And um, of course, there are, at the moment, there are some examples of uh, companies or projects that they use, uh, or they have done some experiments on liquid democracy without using um, blockchain technology, for example, there was an experiment on running liquid democracy in Google. However, um, in that um, case, you have to trust the election um, authority behind that, so the, the company in that uh, context. But using the blockchain technology, the election running uh, could be just distributed to various stakeholders, including the, the whole electorate uh, themselves. So this is a question that we come up, we come, we come at sideways or, or it, from a different perspective. So we, at Demos, we've got a big paper that's publishing tomorrow proposing a concept called combined choice, uh, a, a way of thinking about democratic decision making that argues that throughout history, at least the last 30 years, digital, the digital revolution, digital technologies have had a fundamental effect where they've on sectors from whether it's finance to music, whatever it is. And so when we think of digital voting, that always feels like a fairly superficial cosmetic change. 
when the more interesting question is what's the fundamental change and so the argument that 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 we we make in this paper is that we need to move away from a system that looks at laws and, and decisions individually incrementally right this is a byproduct of sort of 900 year old system of putting forward a proposal and making a yes or no decision and to look more holistically at the law so while someone like Lawrence Lessig argued that we should think of code as law for the way that it structures society our argument is the other way around that we should think of law as code now not write it as code or make it machine readable but think of it as the nation's operating system and so the proposal we're putting forward continues that logic out and says if we take all of the rules that structure society and we bundle them together in one place then change suggestions of change ideas can be put forward as an alternative version of that bundle rather than as an incremental yes or no decision and our group of decision makers whether they're every whether it's every citizen or or a smaller group can choose the bundle of stuff they want and the one with the most support is adopted and this is something we're we're putting into practice with a housing estate in east london and will we hope soon be used in 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 birmingham to make various local level decisions and so in relation to this debate the point isn't to say how can we use technology to do this one surface level thing within our system but how can these digital technologies change the way the system works and that's what's always happened and so we're we're confident that that approaching it in that fundamental way will produce surprising and unusual results i like this idea of of looking at democracy as a technology stack and you know there are different components in that stack and you may upgrade one component like you may upgrade the kernel on your operating on your system right or you might upgrade certain software and you know voting is definitely one of the components in that in that broader stack uh one of the things that was brought up you know during uh, this last segment was the the idea of trust and that digital voting systems need to be trusted by the greater population and perhaps they have suffered uh from lack of trust and in case in fact this was probably the case in in the Netherlands as was pointed out like what are some of the good good standards or good normative properties uh for liquid democracy systems and perhaps what are some ways in which technologists uh but also just broadly those who are promoting uh these systems can help essentially the trust behind them there's a um well-known paper sadly i i will google it right after my intervention here and 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 try to remember it but this there's a paper that tries to address the problem of voting systems uh, coming from strictly from an information theoretic perspective and ultimately like the desirable system for any electoral game is you want a system where you have guaranteed vote secrecy you want the privacy of the vote to be an element that uh, so you prevent the coercion of the consciousness of the voter and the voter can vote freely then you have to guarantee the integrity of the vote uh, meaning that uh, from emission to tallying uh, you know you have the guarantees that the vote will be the the vote that the voter exactly wanted to 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 vote that, that there's no middleman or attacking the middle that will try to change that vote so integrity is very important and lastly uh, the element of verifiability uh, allowing for the voter to effectively verify that his or her vote has been counted the right way and that the tally meets the number of voters and so on So secrecy, integrity and verifiability are three key properties for any electoral system but when you analyze it from a strictly uh, information theoretic lens and and looking at the problem 
from a mathematical theoretical standpoint, not from real world challenges, the paper comes to the conclusion that it's very hard to reach all three. That you end up having some kind of trilemma where there have to be concessions. You might want to, you can have a private secret vote, but then guaranteeing the ver verifiability is not that easy. Or you know, there's only two out of three that you can that you can gather. So it's it's a it's a very complex problem. It dates back also to Arrow's uh, famous paper on on the challenges of uh, elaborating a perfect democratic system at least from a mathematical standpoint, where we have to deal with this, the, the grim reality that the perfect voting system might not exist. Yeah, to, and to that I can add uh, some other requirements of, of such a system. One is, uh, you know, we were discussing the blockchain earlier, so one, one important feature to ensure trust in the system would be uh, to think very carefully about uh, who who are going to be the stakeholders. So you have Mostly in, in, in uh, you know, national elections, you would have uh, an election authority. So if you have instead, if you have this blockchain based electronic voting system, who are going to be the stakeholders who will control, uh, who will control the, the code and everything else? So, uh, so ideally, you know, people from different parties who have opposing interests should be, uh, should be the stakeholders. So that's an important question. And the, the, the other question that I would, I mean, the other problem I would add is from a social science point of view is that of, Vote buying, which becomes much easier with uh, with electronic voting, and I think Santi did mention that to some extent that uh, the secrecy of the vote or, or to prevent uh, coercion of voters. How do you do that in these systems? And this is where economics and social science can contribute in the design of such uh, systems. I just oh, found the paper is called "An Information Theoretic Model of Voting Systems." If you want to Google it. Some other good properties of uh, liquid democracy is that um, okay, it combines uh, the advantages of uh, representative and direct democracy, and in theory, can could also increase participation. For example, those people that abstain um, because, let's say, that they don't know what uh, to vote for in continuous referenda, then they might have the option to choose the person that they trust, and that could also happen for different topics, so more knowledgeable people can influence the final outcome. However, if the trust is broken, then citizens could um, deviate um, faster than what we currently have um, their votes to some, uh, to some others. Also about, um, we might have also the issue of uh, vote buying, but I believe that that also could be a, a nice uh, mechanism um, and design problem. For example, we know currently that there exist some um, blockchains that they are anonymous blockchains. So, for example, you don't, if you have a transaction, let's say, of votes towards um, your, um, I don't know, favorite um, trustee, um, then um, the person that will receive the votes might not be able to see where these votes come from. So maybe something like that could also solve um, any potential vote buying problem. But that also, again, it depends on the application, the voting applications that you want. You might have other voting applications, for example, in the corporate um, uh, system that um, vote buying, for example, in, between shareholders um, is acceptable. When it comes to this this question of liquid democracy, and I'd be interested to hear what Santiago has to say about this, as he's looked at this probably closer than, than we have. But when we looked at this 
structure. The big problem that we found came when you try and divide things into different areas. So is something a health question? Is it an education question? Is it a finance question? Is it a budget question? Often it's all of those things. And then, of course, the complexity that emerges as you're delegating, uh, delegating and delegating and delegating. And so we came to the conclusion that liquid democracy isn't a good idea. And that wonder what my fellow panelists may disagree. But and then in the sort of same exercise, we looked at a lot of blockchain based ideas. And one thing that struck us was that there is an inherent distribution to a democracy. Right. You're you're asking lots of citizens. And so rather than involve sort of distributed ledgers, uh, distributed computation, a currency, an exchange, all these kind of things, we came to the position that the best form of distribution we could have in a democracy is, is a situation where the decisions of each person uh, are held in different locations and then aggregated to reveal their preferences. Whether that passes Santiago's three tests, I'm not sure. I think that's perhaps impossible, but... Um, that, that, that's our view. So we, I'm on the other side of the fence when it comes to liquid democracy. It's a fascinating topic. I think that we're, one interesting thing about electronic technology is that it, it gives us a new canvas to advance the game theory on how voting systems work. And we no longer have to be limited to strictly first-past-the-post voting and people raising hands and that's it. We can go many, many steps further and, and probably since the rise of the smart contract economy and where there are a lot of governance experiments happening, we are starting to see how these experiments play out. There are several ideas. Uh, we have at Democracy Earth experimented with many of these. Uh, we have tried liquid democracy in the past. We have seen democracy, liquid democracies being implemented in some other protocols. Usually there's a nice case that I always quote uh, that is called, it's a blockchain project called LISC. And you have the ability to do what it's called delegated proof of stake. It's not exactly democracy because there's no way of formalizing human identity on blockchains yet. But people were voting directly with their tokens or delegating tokens to other participants. And the community ended up having two large parties, uh, Republicans and Democrats, all over again competing for the decision-making process. And this is actually a pattern that happens in a lot of token voting schemes on Ethereum today, for instance, where uh, if you look at Uniswap, for, for example, it, it has two addresses, each holding 32% of the tokens, which means they have two thirds of the voting power in the protocol, which means that whenever someone goes to a decision in the Uniswap protocol, uh, the only decision makers are those two whales, rendering the whole voting process irrelevant because what whales usually do is they just see how everyone is voting on a decision and at the last minute or the last block of the blockchain, they just tumble the election according to their own personal interests. So um, until we don't get a way of formalizing human identity over decentralized networks in a way that is privacy preserving, so we don't recreate Facebook or the Chinese Communist Party, which are essentially the same thing, uh, we, we, we still have a very open problem about how to achieve digital democracy in these networks. Um, from the game theoretic point of view, uh, we have been exploring uh, several ideas, an interesting approach we like a lot that gave us good results in Colorado in the United States, uh, where we did a big pilot was uh, quadratic voting, which is a system where it captures not only the preference of the voters, but also the intensity of those preferences. 
as the cost for giving your vote to an idea increases quadratically rather than linearly. And that pushes the voter to decide uh, whether he or she will support uh, uh, with all of his voting power uh, a minoritarian idea or uh, with a weak voting power several ideas. And every election in the world is really a challenge of that. The weak preferences of the majority versus the strong preferences of the minorities. And uh, being able to capture that with novel game theory is really interesting, but at the same time, it's very important in democracy that every player understands the rules. So um, we still have a long way to go, I think. Hmm. That, I mean, that's a great point. And I think it points to, to something which uh, we, were do- we were talking about before uh, this started. And I, I kind of chimed into the previous uh, talk and, and I... I just came in when Vinay Gupta was saying that we need to divorce democracy from the current governmental framework. And I wonder to what extent, you know, liquor democracy and the things that we're discussing here and that we're talking about here in this panel are framed in the context of what we know and understand as what a democracy does and should look like. I wonder if, you know, this current framework perhaps uh, needs to evolve and, you know, isn't, uh, is no longer adapted to, you know, our current, to our current reality to what extent does do you think that you know democracy itself you know needs an upgrade at every you know point in the stack including this idea of you know one vote one person one vote one example which was mentioned in the previous panel was you know statistical uh, models to determine people's interests and broader trends in society what are your thoughts on some of these ideas uh, as democracy well, it certainly needs to, to evolve. evolve. And I, I like seeing these ideas sort of battle it out. And I think we have to be quite blunt when we're comparing them and, and testing them and, and looking at them. Uh, I, the thing that I'm most excited about is this idea of a sort of two-sided network or a two-sided market where instead of having to go down the quadratic road or instead of having to randomly select citizens, you've got a group in which people are free to choose the thing they want, but they're also free to propose alternatives. This is kind of how the free market works. And it produces great results because if you don't like what you see, you can put forward something else. So the freedom to choose tells us which is best and the freedom to propose increases the, the, the quality of available options. And so I think rather than complex, making democracy more complex for citizens, asking them to do more, we can ask them to do less, but add that second side and increase the sort of improve the quality of what's being decided. There's a, a famous a president from Uruguay, very loved by everyone in Latin America, except by Uruguayans, as usually happens with politicians. No one is a preacher in their homeland. Uh, called Pepe Mujica, who once told me one day that I had, was able to meet him in Washington. I asked him, well, what's, what kind of advice would you give to a, a democracy activist? And he said, you're going to get tired a lot because it's a never-ending process. Democracy is always a working process. If, it, if democracy was an absolute idea, a totalitarian idea, it would be a, pretty much a, a fascist model of the world like every other ideology that is out there that gives you a complete idea of the world. Democracy is the one exception. It's the system about how we make decisions and not necessarily about a conclusion about how the world should work out. So uh, it's, it's, it's always going to be uh, a frustrating process because uh, it's it's a process that should have uh, first and foremost 
the goal of including everyone in the in a decision making process and that takes education that takes technology that takes a lot of tools and I guess it's it's an ongoing evolutionary process. The good thing is that every government in the world claims uh, to be a democracy. North Korea is called Democratic People's Republic of Korea. In the Chinese constitution, it says like the second paragraph, China is a democratic dictatorship, whatever that means. So it's interesting that it's an idea that subversive that can penetrate every government in the world, uh, yet uh, everyone has very different ideas of what it means. Yeah, I, I see that this, you know, the, the evolving of, of dem the evolution of democracy and uh, technology, it's, it's a huge challenge because the incentives of politicians uh, to implement any of these new systems, which might uh, distribute power more equally among people, uh, is going to be resisted, it seems, a lot. So, Even if we think, you know, ideally the, the blockchain might solve the problems of secure electronic voting or that liquid democracy is much better in this complex world where, you know, you need, uh, you need uh, experts to make decisions. So liquid democracy might be ideally very useful, but it's probably going to be resisted a lot. And so I don't know what the projection is, what, what you know, what we can expect in terms of implementation of any of these technologies. So what I have to add in uh, all these nice comments that I totally agree with is that, um, yeah, some type of liquid democracy could maybe start from um, smaller uh, scales. So, for example, some trials or from local authorities, as um, John mentioned uh, before, and from, um, from the bottom to the top. So I, I think that should probably have some type of effect in order to, to make more people come together for the decision-making um, as well for their everyday life. Yeah, I mean, my, my fear here, uh, my concern, I'd say, is that there, there is very little incentive for politicians to, to implement new innovations in the democratic system. And the rate at which technology is advancing and the rate at which largely corporations are benefiting from that speed uh, of, of evolution of, in technology, that democracy starts to lose its, its power in the sort of more global order of things, and that we see you know, power falling into the hands of non-elected corporations. And to some extent, this is what we've started to observe. You know, I want to come just as we start to come towards the end of our conversation here, you know, bring it to, back to the, the recent U.S. election One of the things that stood out to me uh, as I was following this was the extent to which people seem to be so incredibly attached to the democratic process and the framework for the U.S. democratic process or the, the U.S. Constitution. It, it seems almost sanctified, right, that this document that was written two and a half, three centuries ago still is upheld in, in some sanctimonious uh, fashion. This is the case You know, here in France, for example, as well, the constitution isn't nearly that old here, but obviously that has its flaws. The world has changed since then. And, you know, I feel that there's a reluctancy to replace the systems that are already in place and have systems that are more adapted to a modern society. You know, what are some signs that we might observe that things could change in the future? Or, you know, are we headed <laughs> towards a more bleak, outcome uh, where uh, we perhaps you know, go more 
towards uh, conflict uh, than a um, more just uh, democratic system. I had a conversation recently with a China analyst and we were sort of semi-joking that there seems to be these two options between a highly efficient authoritarian regime or a highly inefficient democratic regime. That's like, I, it doesn't totally fall into those categories, but that seems to be the kind of the dichotomy. And so I would say that the, the big challenge, the big exercise is to create the efficient democracy. And that, and that is the nuts and bolts. It is the system. It is the processes and demonstrating something that works so much better than the system we've got in whatever use case that, that, uh, that it, it starts to spread. That, that, those are my two cents. Every American election to me is uh, an interesting case study on how to exploit democracy one way or another, whether it was Cambridge Analytica four years ago or uh, mailing ballots uh, on this year's election. The, the one thing that we do know is that we usually go to a vote uh, when it's a hard, difficult, conflicting decision. We don't go for a vote for easy choices or easy decisions. So by definition, uh, democracies have to thrive in very hostile environments. And hostile environments means that there will be players willing to cheat, uh, willing to corrupt, willing to take over the election, whatever it takes. So the systems that we build have to be extremely resilient uh, to be able to survive these kind of hostile actors. Um, and the reason we go to democracies is because the higher the risk in a decision, the higher the need for legitimacy in the decision-making process. That's why we choose the route of democracy, to, to address the, the need for uh, legitimacy in a very conflicting environment. Democracies are not meant to, to rule over easy, easy decisions or simple decisions. So in that regard, I think we, we will keep seeing exploits over democracies every four years or every two years around the world as technology also plays an important role in manipulating and, and setting the agenda. And, and I, I know from experience on every pilot we have done in Democracy Earth, we had attempts from hacker, hacking from coming from governments, coming from activists, coming from insiders of an organization. If the in decision is important, there will be experts. Yeah, I think I, I am also quite pessimistic about the adoption of, uh, you know, good democratic uh, practices or changing the current system. As I said before, I think I'm quite cynical about politicians wanting to give up their power. Uh, but looking at, you know, uh, how change happens might be a good way to go. So looking across countries to see which ones uh, have adopted better systems and how they did it might be one way to to to, to research on this. And and what you notice also is is the large number of protests that are going on from ordinary people across the world. And one question that uh, you know that is really outstanding out for me is when when do such protests succeed? And if they do succeed, then I think that gives us a hint about what conditions are needed in order to change democratic processes. And the one more challenge uh, I can see in all this um, evolution of uh, democracies that. Um, um, it is a topic that involves many different disciplines. So it's not only computer science, mathematicians, economists, social scientists, lawyers, um, activists. So it requires the effort of um, all these disciplines together. So, but the good thing is that uh, at least in academia, there is some a new trend for interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary 
research that I believe that um, could uh, deal with this, at least with this challenge as well. But there is a lot of other way to go. One of, one of the things that stood out for me here, Santiago, uh, is uh, the parallels between you know your, your statements about the attacks on democracy and you know software. And if you think of you know the U.S. democracy as software, which was written. 300 years ago, and the last update happened in 1992 with the 27th Amendment. Well, no wonder it's getting attacked with like these very modern exploits, right, that exist in our current reality. Is it safe to say that democracies that don't up, update at a quick up pace, right, that, that don't apply the software patches are due and are, are bound to, uh, to be exploited and, um, yeah, and whatever consequences that has? To me, the most salient fact of the week of the American election and of these last couple of weeks is that the rise of uh, the price of Bitcoin and uh, crypto in general is going significantly up uh, in a very fast pace. And that's the strenuous effect of people exiting a system and engaging in something else. You're you're being quite generous in referring to it as old software. In the UK, we still write laws on bits of dried animal skin. And so I think the question (laughs) isn't how we vote, but what we're voting for. And so I would encourage a bigger framing of the issue. Any last words uh, before we close up here? I I know we've been a bit pessimistic, but... I, I choose not to surrender. You know, it's a, I know it's going a bit to be a battle of generations, and the more we keep fighting, eventually the better things will get. And and I think uh, it's an exciting time to be working on technology around this. There's tremendous potential, tremendous creativity being applied to this. And uh, I, I I recover my optimism when I meet young hackers around the world building on Ethereum or with Bitcoin and on these new networks that are daring to create an institutional reality for the world. Clementia, Amrita, any final thoughts? No, I think the, the U.S. election, uh, you know, demonstrated to us um, how similar the U.S. is to, you know, countries like India. I mean, we have, or, or even Africa, you know, we have like, you know, coups going on and uh, very similar sorts of problems, which we were really, you know, really shocked to see that uh, the U.S. could have these issues of trust in in elections as uh, developing countries have. So uh, in indeed, you know, uh, many of my my uh, friends have mentioned how India could actually help the US by providing them these electronic voting machines to help them next time. So I think maybe there is this convergence happening in politics, if not in economics. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.